0: all right let's do this how are you what the fuckers what the fuck buddies what the fucking ears what the fucksters what's happening i'm mark Marin. this is my podcast wtf i'm recording this from a, a different location i'm not in the garage i imagine you can hear a little difference in the sound quality i'm in a hotel room in new york city in manhattan and i'm actually i'm in a neighborhood that uh that i'm not usually in i'm I, they put me up in midtown as some of you know i will be um I'll be working on the Joker movie. I start tomorrow and uh, I'm not nervous yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I I know many of you know this. I know some of you still don't think I've addressed the, uh, the, the reality of it properly, uh, given my criticism of superhero movies, but I will stand by my, not only my defense of taking this opportunity to, do a scene with robert de niro and joaquin phoenix but also in defense of this particular movie it's not what you think and that's the truth i went out to a set can't tell you where it is but it uh, it was it was outside the city uh to that's where the that's where they were set up for that day and i fit it, i got fitted for my outfit and um I've been going over my lines, and I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready in my mind. I don't know what it'll be like to be standing next to Robert De Niro doing a scene. Walking, actually. We're going to be walking. I think I can tell you that. We're going to be walking and doing a scene. I'm going to be walking and talking to Robert De Niro and then standing still and talking to both of them. That's I can tell you that much. I believe I'm free and clear to say that. I don't think I've let on anything, really. But uh, I imagine tomorrow when I get there, I'll be like, holy shit. But who knows? I don't know. Did I mention who's on the show? Eric Idle is here from Monty Python. There's been a Monty Python week. So, New York. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've been coming here. You know I I lived here. I had a big chunk of my life here and I come here and I, I always have odd feelings, you know. I do, I don't this is a perfect time of year, fall on the east coast when it gets a little crisp in the air and the 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 sky is clear and uh, the leaves are starting to turn, some of them have turned. You know you're starting to just wear the that one layer or two layers. It's it just it, it does something to my brain. Gets me into a space, into a it's not a, a high feeling and I, I don't know really, you know, what to call it, but it's, it's sort of thoughtful. There's a, there, you know, a, it's a, a time of reflection. I really, like, I don't really do what I used to do when I come here and I don't know how to really stay here more than three days. I left for a reason. And I've talked about that before, you know, it gets to be a little overwhelming uh, New York and you, you get to a point where you just got to get out. But so much of my, uh, my my brain is interfaced with this city. I know how to be in New York, but I, I think I finally sort of figured out why I don't really like staying here more than a few days when I used to just love it here. And the truth is, it's like nostalgia can be sort of malignant. I'm not that nostalgic a person. I don't really think about the past as a better time or think that things were necessarily better in the past or I don't I don't have I don't revise things from my past or or sort of ruminate on them in a way that that makes me feel like my present is no good I mean generally I I I tend to forget most of of what I went through if anything and, and my memories of things they never tend towards like being better than they what they were they always go the other way really but I think that in general You know, our own personal histories and whatever we've come through and whatever we've gone through sort of define us. And I looked up the word nostalgia. The definition is a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations, something done or presented in order to evoke feelings of nostalgia. But then if you go to the origin of nostalgia, it's Greek, it's nostos. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. I'm not some sort of. Uh, linguistic person nostos which is return home and algos which is pain and that sort of evolved into homesickness and then nostalgia evolved into acute homesickness and i don't know if they got it right because i think really what's most cathartic to me about the origin is that return home pain I think that's more why we don't go back places. Like, like me, I, I understand how it evolved into like when you're not home that there's a pain for not being home. But I just think if we break it down to nostos and algos is return home. There is pain. You return home, and then the pain will come back. So even in the natural evolution of the word to where it becomes homesickness, in that idea of nostalgia is this essence of the trauma of the past. Like I go around this town, I'm like, why does it feel a little haunted? Whatever my life was here, it was a fucking struggle, all of it. I went through a marriage here. I went through my stand-up, early stand-up career here. I went through drugs here. I went through complete chaotic, you know, existential earthquakes of self here. I, you know, I you know, part of it defined me, but I just started to realize that this sort of overwhelming kind of energy that makes new york amazing you know always had this tinge to it because i was always happy to be here but what was that tinge what was that isolating feeling what was that that kind of darkness around the edges outside of it just being new york was that holy shit i was a chaotic fucking mess when i was here just you know at all different points in the decade or so that i was here and i realized like oh that's it i mean i'm not nostalgic for any of that I mean, as cool as it is to come back and kind of walk past the old haunts and everything, that's what they are. They're old haunts for a reason, because they haunted you and they still haunt you. And it's like, if you really put yourself back in that place from your past, it's like, I would never want to fucking be there again. So it's not getting me depressed because obviously you move through it to a point where you're like, well, I I I, I did okay, you know, even given all of that bullshit. You know, I made it out and I'm alive and things are going okay. But that doesn't mean that performing for four people or sweating alone in my apartment or, or wondering, you know, what the fuck was going to happen with my life, getting fucked up all the time, full identity crisis of you know, what, what am I doing with my life and that stuff. It's all here. Sweaty Marin wanders these streets eternally. And it all comes down to like, here's New York, but here are those two blocks, man. Here are those four blocks. Here are those two or three clubs. This was your life for years. And you were sweaty and angry and freaked out and terrified and fucking unsure of everything and just barely hanging on that guy you know if i go back to those two blocks or i go back to that area where those three clubs are i can still feel and see that part of me that that me who i was just wandering around sweaty and angry and lost and fucking you know hanging hopes on nothing granted i got through it but when i get in it it's sort of like oh okay that's the darkness so maybe my realizing this Maybe I should just, you know what I'm going to do? I think I'm going to go downtown and I'm going to find sweaty Mark. I'll probably have to wait until it's like two in the morning. Maybe go over to uh Viselka, sit down with sweaty Mark and, and just go like, dude, you know, you can, you can leave. You, you know, you don't have to, you know, it worked out. It worked out sweaty Mark. So let's uh, let's get together on this and, frame it the right way so you're not nagging at me when I come back here. Yeah, that was that experience. I'm glad I put that together. Return home pain. Right? So Eric Idle. This was a great a great conversation. It was it was fun. Having the honor actually to talk to Jean Cleese and Eric Idle was it was an amazing experience. And and when I talked to Eric And I didn't talk to much about John about this specifically, but I remember, man, I remember. Do you remember? I mean, I'm 55 now. And I remember when Monty Python was on PBS. That was where you had to watch it. And I remember when I first heard about it and turning that channel over to PBS, which was generally at at that point, I guess it was in the 70s and I was young. It was kind of flat. It was not that engaging. I didn't watch Sesame Street. I didn't watch McNeil-Lair. I didn't, uh, you, you know, I, there were news programs on there, but I don't know that I really understood what public broadcasting was, but it was on there. But I remember late at night you would tune in and those credits, the Terry Gilliam credits and It would just, like, it was fucking mind-blowing it's like what am i watching what the fuck is happening and i was thinking about this alongside of thinking about nostalgia and thinking about when i was younger and thinking about you know getting into that space and thinking about sitting in front of that tv set late at night downstairs in the house i grew up in you know alone in the dark in front of that tv set and that monty python came on and you were like what is this there is nothing like this on any planet except here and now. What is going on? And then it would just unfold. The show would unfold. And you're like, what am I watching? What's happening to my brain? It was fucking mind blowing. And I, and I just really kind of locked into that today when I was thinking about talking to you guys about this, that like there was nothing like it. And to this day, the remains It remains that there's nothing like it, but watching that when it was happening at the time it was happening, uh, you know, having that weird secret feeling of like, does anybody else know about this? This is insane. What am I watching? That was the beauty of it. And then just taking it in and trying to wrap your brain around it was spectacular. It was, it was incredible experience. And now I get to talk to one of the guys, another one of the guys. Uh, Eric Idle uh, has a book out. It's his memoir. Always Look on the Bright Side of Life is now available wherever you get books. And this was a conversation that happened a few weeks ago in the garage and uh, had a lovely time. These guys are they're They're great. I'd I'd like to talk to Palin. Maybe that can happen. I don't know. But uh, but this is me. And Eric Idol back in the garage I just I got your book and I picked and someone sent me the uh, the oral history of David Bowie and I, I noticed you weren't
1: in there you're like one of uh, uh, th- did they ask you to do that somebody wrote to me and said I'm so sorry I didn't talk to you oh that uh, <laughs> but that. I don't think they knew we were friends it wasn't a very broadcast Right. It was just happened. We happened to be friends for, for quite a long time. Actually, when did actually, you meet 80s him? And, um, I what? met him through Bobcat Goldthwait here in the in the I think eighties. You met him through Bobcat? Yes. He was I, good friends. But he loved comedians. I didn't. I had no idea that Bobcat knew him. And I've talked to Bobcat.
0: He's directed my show. I've been. He's been on this show a million times. And how did I not know he didn't know Bowie?
1: Um, well, I, I think he introduced us, and then. Then we met in um, on holiday yeah. in St Barts with via John John by Lorne Michaels. Yeah. And we got on really well and then we went and stayed with him several times in it- in, S- in Switzerland. Oh really? Yeah, we got really good friends and we went on a couple of cruises with him. With Bowie? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I, see, it always uh, surprises me as a fan of people that uh, they just have normal lives.
1: That's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who yeah. would have figured? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, you're, so you're down in St. Bart's with Lauren Michaels, David Bowie. Yeah. Just like...
1: But then his kid was there. My kid was there. You I, know, I just like, interviewed him. Duncan? Yeah, Duncan. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, there's a picture of him in the book, Yeah, too. I saw that. Uh, um, I guess we're on St. No, I don't know where we are on holiday there. Is it an odd thing, My, though, Mystique, perhaps that
0: uh, that when you reach a certain level of celebrity that uh, you sort of have to hang out with uh, the other ones?
1: I think it becomes neutralized. Yeah. I don't think they aren't, they aren't celebrities. They're right. just people you meet who happen to be in show business. In the same business you yeah. are. Yeah, that makes or, sense. Or not even the same business. They're doing music. You know, I'm not in that business. But... You are in that business. Well, peripherally.
0: But I mean, it seems like that was the, it, it almost seems like that was the thing you were most passionate about early on.
1: Early on, when I first came to America, most of my life here was rock and roll. So I was up at night only. Yeah. I that was with Harrison and George and people. When, when was that? What year really, are you talking oh, about? I suppose we're talking 75. We first came here in 73. With the um, troop, st- with the at, guys? Stayed at the riot house, yes. Yeah, over on the Hyatt. It's now the Hyatt. Yeah, yeah next to the comedy store. Well, they, they call it the riot yeah, house. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was, was crazy. It, yeah. In 73? Yeah.
0: Oh, that exactly. must have been crazy.
1: Well, we came out, it was crazy. All the guys? All except John, who missed a good time always. Of, <laughs> <laughs> just his nature? <laughs> well, he was older. <laughs> you know, I mean, he literally How much is. older? Um, well, he's born in 1939. Yeah. So he will be what? Next year, he will be... Eighty,
0: yeah, that's Is it like, possible. My, yes, yeah, next year. Yeah, my dad's eighty this year. So he's seventy-nine
1: this year, this year um, and I'm only seventy-five. Yeah, oh, so I... pale too. We're the youngest too. How was he at uh, Cambridge when you were there? If he was five years older, because after the war. All of the servicemen got a preference to go into Cambridge and in Oxford. Uh-huh. So he got had to wait. His generation had to wait a couple of years. And he might have been liable for national service. But what he did is he went back to his old prep school and taught Latin for two years. Oh,
0: that's right. Yeah, I think he told me that. It's yeah. just crazy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's his happiest time. Yeah. So it's even weirder. <laughs> He's really a teacher, John. I mean, in, in, yeah. in, in, in many good ways. So 73, you're here. It's all rock and roll? 73, we here. Trip it's over? A, it's the summer of rock and roll. We came out of touring canada uh-huh as a group as the group and that was a rock and roll reaction
0: it was at the end of uh but that was the
1: end of the tv show brown 73 no the tv show was oh we know we were deciding whether to do a fourth series uh-huh and on the tour john announced he was not going to do that <laughs> and so he left us at vancouver which was the last days yeah and we were taken by Neil Bogard, the record company, Buddha Records. So they took us down to uh, L.A. Yeah. to do promo because we were only on records yeah. here. Oh, and people you. only knew us as a recording. They thought we were like, what, what's that called? Far Sign Theater. They right, thought like we just did comedy ra- records. Well, there were two of them, right? Two records? I don't know what they released here. Yeah. Uh, but they... They were they were on Buddha and then yeah. we had to do we did the Tonight Show, we did, you know, various weird promotional things. And it was and that's interesting. So the so the T V show
0: didn't start airing here until when? I would say seven it was started in Dallas. Um, what I, a strange beginning isn't it
1: yeah uh, on the da, pbs there. dallas pbs yeah. ron devillier picked it up it was very cheap from the bbc and he noticed an immediate spike on sunday nights yeah and he persuaded other stations including new york right to run it other pbs stations
0: i grew up in new mexico and i remember that was where you found it it was this strange thing to find where you know word got out and you're like that's on pbs what is it and it'd be on late at night
1: and you'd be sitting there you're a kid and you're like what am, what am i watching I was like 13. And for about 25, 30 years, that was it. And that was so great for us because it ran. Nobody cared. Yeah. And it was on. People could find it. In every city. Yeah. All over America. It didn't hit ratings or anything because it's on PBS. Mm -hmm. And they didn't cut it. Yeah. And they didn't have commercial breaks. Right. So it was just a perfect home. We wouldn't have been there but for that. And it's interesting because that cultivated a, a true
0: cult audience i mean it, yes. it, it, that you know people became very dedicated to it it was a unique find you know who would who would watch pbs and you had this whole generation of people that
1: were discovering something that almost no one knew about that's was the experience of python people yeah sort of discovered it like a cult yeah and it was a you know cult viewing and oh did we know this and you know when we ever did a tour they would come out and they'd find other fans at right. the concert with them. Right, uh, right. And that, that was like news to them. There Converts. Other, yeah, yeah. The, other people. Oh, I see. I see. So they'd go to the show and they're like, "Oh, you like them too." Right? The other people.
0: Yeah, you know. <laughs> my gosh, I thought it was just my little secret. <laughs> uh, so I who did I talk to? It was Roger Waters, I think, who I talked to, of a generation of people that were born, you know, during World War II, and and sort of the effect that has because that's one. Big difference between Americans and Europeans is that Europeans were they they got the shit bombed out of them, and it was a real thing. And that's something we have no real uh, awareness
1: of here. No, and and you remember it? How old were you? I remember the sound of the sirens. I was I was about two and a half when the war ended in forty five. Oh, yeah. I was young, but yeah, when, but terror it communicates itself very quickly. <laughs> uh, uh, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it was an experience, and then after the post-war, it was very bleak because we had rationing till I was ten or eleven. Because it was rubble forever. It was rubble everywhere. And your father didn't die in the war. My father died hitchhiking home for Christmas. From the RAF. And he made it through the war. Made it through the war from 1941 in the back, you know, in the Lancaster bomber. Wow. But he was in transport command mostly. But yeah. um, And then was sort of killed in a road accident on the way home for Christmas. Oh, my God. I know. It's <laughs> But, but you, you don't remember that. No, I don't remember that. But you remember uh, his absence. I think so. Yes. I mean, they were always absent because they were in the war. Right, so they were away. You don't remember, but I mean, I have pictures and his diaries and little things. It's yeah. very sweet. Afterwards, you put these things together, you know. And do you have siblings? Uh, no, you were only child. Only child. Yes. Wow. So when when after your father passed, I mean, did you just grow up with your mother? Um, my mother went into sort of kind of man- sort of depression, and it was uh, so. I grew up with my what I call my grandma and my pop, who I think were her uncle and aunt. Yeah. and I was in manchester and they were very loving and so very the, nice to me so the depression lasted a lifetime no well yeah on and off it did actually i think she was bipolar but um eventually then she got a job as a nurse in uh Wallasey, which is the other side of the Mersey from liverpool and i went to school there with her for the first time at five uh-huh and then you didn't stay there though Well, was there two years and then she got an offer from the uh, RAF Benevolent Fund yeah, to put me into this uh, boarding school which paid for our, the entire education. Oh, th- so they did that. That's how you got into uh, Oxford as well or Cambridge as because well. Because of that really indirectly, 12 years later. But all the boys I was at school with had no fathers but but uh so but they some of them remembered them passing or like yeah so i you don't capture- think so
0: we'd have in, been kids yeah in the in the book you sort of uh talk about how it, you
1: they, they were all crying and you didn't yeah. Yeah. well that was early on you're, yeah. you're, you're, you know seven it's a bit of a shock to be oh, to be taken yeah, so away suddenly from- you're in the middle of a this sort of awful place you yeah know. <laughs> it, it was awful <laughs> yeah yeah, no, it was awful. The senior school was awful. We were in a dormitory, and the senior school was 100 yards long. Right. With a bed every three feet. You oh, know. my God. Okay, yeah, okay. no, not great. No. <laughs> not much privacy. To... No privacy at all. Uh, and a lot of bullying and quite a lot of beating. Because oh, you could be beaten by the prefects. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. So, so that, was, uh, that was okay then? Endemic. And yeah. And then, then the masters could beat you with canes. Really? It was their privilege, Did, yes. did that happen to you a lot? A lot. Why, because you were a smartass? Well... Well, you could put it that way. I mean, I was once beaten for silent insolence. (laughs) What (laughs) chance does that give you? I didn't say anything. (laughs) Yeah, but you looked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We sensed what you were thinking. Yes. And when did you, like, with the British, the, the entire comedic sensibility is different. I believe, than, than here in the States. And there's a whole history of comedy that I learn about in bits and pieces. So when you were younger, at that age, what were your first experiences with with the,
1: the idea of being funny or what was entertaining to you? Well, we didn't have much entertainment. What we got into most of all was rock and roll. So right. when our Elvis came and saved our lives, yeah. so we had little transistor radios. We actually built crystal sets first to listen to the music we, oh, on the radio. And so you were you're clever kids. Well, we yeah. were smart. Yeah, we figured out. You had all this time. Yeah, you got fourteen weeks <laughs> yeah. of school. Right, I mean, it's just endless. It doesn't. And then other people grew up and had teenage lives. You know, they're right. going out and dating and dancing. Yeah, but we're stuck in this place, so we listened a lot to music, rock yeah. and roll. It was very, very important. It's it was life saving. Something really was life-saving. happening. Totally, Elvis totally saved our lives. Really, Do you remember the first time you heard it? But you could absolutely. You, I was actually, I was in a, I was in a cat. It was a Heartbreak Hotel. And uh, it was 57, I think, and I was at this sort of holiday camp yeah. called Butlins, where oh, yeah. you went for two weeks, and you know, it was and, quite fun. But and, um, all the girls, and they were dancing and jitterbugging to that. To Elvis? Yeah, Elvis. Broke it open. Unleashed the uh, primal it's, desire absolutely. of all the children. He seemed to be on our side. He seemed to be talking to us. And did were you playing music at that time? I was in a skiffle group, um, so a folk group. And yeah. so I started off by playing harmonica. Can he still play? Chuck Berry, you know, Branny McGee, and you know, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee. McGee. I'd be like, oh, oh, do pick yeah. a bale of cotton? I'd do yeah. all those things. And then we did sort of you know, black protest songs because I think we associated somehow. <laughs> Being all white in Wolverhampton about three thousand miles from the deep south, right? Maybe five thousand miles. Are uh, we somehow associated with that those protests? The the the, uh, the idea of repression yeah. and, and oppression and, and and not being free to do what you want to do. Totally. So it's between that and uh british war films where they were sort of escaping from colditz. so we our school we called colditz. it was like yeah. the colditz, right and you had to break out always climbing over the walls so before but before elvis was there was a, a folk thing happening
0: i mean do you remember because it seemed like the, that you grew up in this prime era of uh, upheaval yes social upheaval so like folk was was popular and that was was that
1: did you see yourself like i'm gonna do this no, 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 no. It was, just, it was fun playing <laughs> right. guitar. We had a b- guitarist, a banjo player, and I was a harmonica player. And then eventually, I got at fourteen, I got myself a guitar. Yeah, and started to try and learn. You know, the basic chords and play songs and things and that. Yeah, and what was the uh, at that time the
0: comedic influences like? What were you listening to outside of Elvis? Was it? I mean, you listening to the radio? There must
1: have been. No, no. Uh, well, there were great shows on the radio, but they were always on when we were doing what, prep. Which was like in the evening, right. just for change. Right. We do a two hours of prep. Which right, means you go into the school, you know, and your classroom, and then yeah. do hours of homework. Yeah, compulsory uh, watched homework. Yeah, but you talk a little in the book
0: about you know being somewhat that some that you were a, a legacy of uh, of performers uh, it, somewhere in your genealogy. There were circus performers,
1: or bra- oh, well, that's true though. That's my great great grandfather was a circus uh, ringmaster in the 1880s 1890s and did you like did you go to the circus i was taken to the circus at five in bellevue manchester by my pop who was looking after me and the clowns treated us like royalty it was unbelievable because his name was bertrand yeah and this guy was called bertrand in the 1880s your great grandfather -grandfather. and he was famous yeah famous ringmaster and the clowns, yeah. And the clowns are very respectful. And, you know, you're terrified of clowns when you're little, but they were. I went backstage. I oh, thought, that's kind of cool, you were, know. Uh, were, circus royalty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> were you terrified of clowns?
1: Yeah, they're kind of scary. Yeah. They're, they're anarchic, you know, especially in the real live performances. Anarchic. Very much so. I guess I never thought about it that way, but that's true. They, they have this sort of like the freedom to do that. Uh, absolutely. And they mess around with the other performers and they sp- pretend to throw buckets of water over the audience. And That's true, yeah. They're yeah. very. They're more fun, actually, in real life like that, in bunches, I think.
0: Yeah, groups of clowns yes, are more fun.
1: They, but you, you get an isolated clown could be sad. It's very sad. It becomes so much as <laughs> a bobcat with some kind of strange agenda to kill you, I think.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but it, like, uh, did you, I, I
1: guess I never really processed that. And you call it like Monty Python's Flying Circus. Where'd that come from? I mean, it, it was it was a very strange amalgamation. But only afterwards did I realize I was also in a circus. Yeah. I mean, hey. that struck me as being really strange. I, and then I looked into my great-grandfather, grandfather and found he was also a comedian when he started. Before they, he became a ringmaster, he was a comedian. Like uh, doing like the, with the well,
0: equivalent of pre-Vaudeville, I guess. We have burlesque uh, houses. I would was? say
1: musical vaudeville. Mm-hmm. There, he was in Folkestone in yeah. one of the uh, censuses. There's him and another guy staying there, and they're listed as comedians. Really? I wonder if they were a team. I think they were. Yeah. No, no, they, weren't. they were. So, t- they were, but I don't know what they did. Yeah. He, that was no. Yeah. No
0: no uh, no uh, uh, historical record of that no videotape no audio tape no uh, transcript it's,
1: it's 1825 i know i know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this very ancient crack record where they're doing yeah. mainly visual comedy <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, What a pity you can't see that <laughs>
0: <laughs> but did you like like i have to assume that that living that kind of life in that sort of there the, it sounds dark it sounds like there was a, a darkness to it that it must have been a relief to
1: laugh i would imagine laughter was very good because it it was our rebellion and you laughed at the the authority and you subverted authority we learned to climb over the walls and go to the off license and buy beer and find mixed mate girls and girls and all the good decent things the things you learn when you're in confinement well yes because it (laughs) is sort of halfway between being in the military and being in prison was that the agenda of the school to get you into the military I don't think so. I think I think they were kindly disposed. I mean there were all these sort of semi orphans that the 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 RAF were paying for. Right. Because they 'cause they're they're so sort of widows. So they it was very hard for single women to have a job and to bring up a, a you know, kid from seven to eighteen. Yeah. It's very, oh, very sure. hard. Yeah. So um, I think they were being philanthropic. Yeah. And-, and you know, doing and we got a decent education. I mean I, I discovered, you know, I got on to... To Cambridge,
0: yeah. What were you? What were your interests when you were at the uh, at the uh, boarding school? I mean, like, because it it seems like y- y- you know when you look at Python and you look at the the work you did, even in music and stuff, that the, there is a historical tradition to it. That you know, certainly the movies of Python, the stuff you guys dealt with, was pretty deep stuff, lofty stuff.
1: Well, I was had two things. I had two toys, one of which was uh, my grand gave me a typewriter. Yeah. So I started to write stories. Yeah. And that was an escape. Yeah. And the other thing was my guitar, which was a fantastic mode of escape. And I suppose the third thing I would say is I learned to read. Yeah. And that that's, that's an enormous escape if you're in a huge, crowded community of yeah. boys and things, you know. And, you know, we played football and yeah. messed around and played cricket. And, you know, it, was, yeah. there was, it wasn't all bleak. Right. I, I mean, I think the overall art of it was bleak because there's no emotional support right
0: right right yeah you no uh, sort great. of like uh, 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 g- not i guess emotional guidance or someone to look up to i mean when you don't have a father that's a it's a big void in terms of like well who am i going to be who is going to be my role model
1: but also your mother isn't there so there are
0: no, no. hugs. Yeah. There's oh, yeah. no
1: kind of oh well, yeah. you must feel blue. Yeah, yeah. no yeah. no shut up. Get on. <laughs> go go over there. You know it's like <laughs> Yeah. Um so it's a, it's a sort of hard I was I think it was tough environment but yeah. good if to I learned a lot of really valuable things. Did you learn how to accept hugs eventually? Eventually, I yeah. persuaded women to let me hug them. <laughs> oh, let them hug me, yes. Yeah. No, of course, you, I mean, after you left, it was just like a pursuit. Right. You know, <laughs> desperate pursuit. Yeah. And so Love then, me, somebody. Yeah. And then you have to learn how to treat, you know, how to actually appreciate women for being women, which yeah. takes
0: a lot longer. Well, yeah, it's a, culturally, they're having, it's a big issue now. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> they're not just things we play with, they're human beings. But I mean, you have to learn that. I, I and think that's nobody true. teaches you. And also, I mean, you, you guys, I mean, you get, you've got co eds, so you, you know, sure. uh, that at least you know uh, they're you around. Go, go with them, right, you know, right, so right. They're there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Try to talk to them. We had <laughs> yeah. to climb, climb over schools and roofs and things to get towards them. <laughs> so Oxford, you went to Cambridge,
0: Cambridge. Yes. Sorry. I get the two confused. Do I, is one better than the other? Are they both equally
1: as... Uh no, they have different kind of personalities. I mean, if you look at Python, yeah. Michael Palin and Terry Jones went to Oxford. John Cleese, me, and Graham Chapman were at Cambridge. Uh-huh. And I think about Oxford are very much more... <laughs> They're prissier. All the politicians in England come out of Oxford, uh-huh. always. So they're much more controlling. Um, Cambridge is much more flamboyant. We produce spies. Right. Basically, spies against from the Russians <laughs> were all Cambridge. And yeah. they were either gay or extremely flamboyant and yeah. drunk. Yeah. And so they, there's much more <laughs> the, enjoyment <laughs> in, in of Cambridge. <laughs> the, and show business is tolerated. It's kind of an okay thing to do to be successful. In Cambridge. Whereas, whereas in Oxford, you sort of have to apologize for it and... And write diaries forever. So, it's Alan Bennett said, we are not supposed to be very into showbiz much, uh, you know? Except <laughs> politics is just, like, not entertaining show business. Well, <laughs> politics is... I don't quite know what politics is, but I think there's a degree they do at Oxford they don't do at Cambridge. This is why they all, do, they all go to... But that's Oxford. funny that the, the
0: prerequisite for spying is flamboyance and drinking and uh, the tolerance of show business. I guess there is a lot of uh, of, of acting and role-playing when you're, you're a professional
1: spy there was a famous one I think his name was Burgess and he was in uh, America he's English and he's in America and he was an extraordinary alcoholic and every mm. night he got drunk and would tell everybody he was a Russian spy <laughs> <laughs> and they went, yeah, yeah. Shut the fuck up. Exactly. Like, like, he, he was saying but that even he after was the... a Russian spy. <laughs> he, he ran away. That, eventually, escaped. That that was the uh, that that was his big
0: front. Is I, is, I, is that he was so upfront about it that people didn't believe it? It's kind of genius. Think it was
1: a clever double bluff. I, yeah. <laughs> he was just <laughs> drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so when you get there,
0: like, so you how how did that? Uh, so the state, how does it work? So they the, the
1: you got a scholarship for for being. A good student? Yeah. In those days, you, I, you get accepted by the college. So 23 colleges at, at Cambridge. And a college will take you on. And then 23 I 23 colleges in different places? There's in not the one... same town.
0: Okay, okay. You you know, so, so the different, different colleges in the university. So there's an engineering college? There's a, a no, English, they're uh, not
1: just... just no, you, you're in a college and that houses you and tells you, but you could be doing math, you could be doing art, you okay. could be doing architecture. Right. It doesn't matter what you're doing. And then you go and study in the university place oh, okay. for whatever you're doing.
0: Right. I get it. Uh, and so... What did you get accepted to do? English, mm.
1: which is nothing at all. <laughs> no, it's important. I mean, I... I no, admit. you just read. I didn't do much except do comedy. I actually stumbled into comedy very early on. I met John Cleese in my second term. Yeah. And I auditioned and I did a, a college review. And I my first piece I did ever publicly was a piece he'd written. Really? Yeah. So, but you weren't
0: like I guess in terms of like when I look at some of the lyrics of the songs, you weren't you weren't uh, in any way obsessed with the, you know the poetry of Alexander Pope or Swift or the funnier
1: Shakespeare, like those kind of like uh, you know historical satirists. Sure, I still am. I love I love Swift. I love Pope. Uh, I, I I absolutely. I it was nice to read English literature. But
0: Even Chaucer was hilarious.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. But the thing was, we're thinking about the English studying English is you don't have to go to the lectures. You yeah. can read the book in three minutes. You've just, he can Everything he's going to say at the lecture, you could have skimmed through. Right, right. And, and really, they're interested in what you think. Right. So, but you have to read the text and then respond to it. So what is the
0: trajectory uh, assumed of somebody studying English at Cambridge? Did, was it like here, like you just sort of like, well, that's a degree I have. Now I, uh, I work at a uh, Photomat or a, a copy store or what?
1: I guess or you teach. go on
0: to be a teacher. I don't
1: honestly know what. I guess you could be a journalist. You could be a writer. Right. I have an English degree, and I'm yeah. in my garage talking to Eric Idle. And I'm here in the garage with my English <laughs> degree talking to you. So, uh, you know, uh, I th- it's nice because I would find that at, at Cambridge, everybody just studying everything else had already read the same books I was reading. Right. So <laughs> right. But they were becoming... Architects. Right, right. Mathematicians or Yeah. They 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 actually had the foresight to create a life for themselves that (laughs) had some security perhaps. But it turned out that was a good it was a good thing to be because I didn't have anything particular to do. So I went into rep for about six minutes and then I got into writing comedy what's rep repertory theater oh okay oh, we did oh what a lovely war Leicester rep and then but basically While you were at Cambridge after just leaving oh so when you're at Cambridge you meet Cleese and you meet uh, who Graham I no, Graham had gone down but I met him at the end of that year I met Michael Palin and Terry Jones at the uh, Edinburgh Festival
0: right but Cle- but when you were at Cambridge and started doing comedy because I talked to a uh, Sasha Baron Cohen who I believe could not get into. He was turned down. From the, what is it, the Footlights? The Footlights. Now, the Footlights, the, you know, this is sort of, like, important for, uh, yeah, but he went on to study uh, clowning with a, a master. I forget the guy's right. name. Right. But, uh, but I think it was a, a sort of uh, deciding factor in his comedic uh, career was that he was turned down from Footlights. And what,
1: was Footlights a historical club that had been there forever? 1883. Uh-huh. And uh, what was the idea of it? I was just a, a, a review society, a comedy society, and we, it had its own club room. So, it was a little stage at one end and a bar at the other end, <laughs> which opened at 10.30 at night. And you could yeah. stay as late as you wanted. Was, oh. So, that was our social life. Yeah. They, they did lunches. So, from about my Three drinks. Free no. no, you get paid. No. Yeah, yeah, but drink. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the pub's closed at ten, right? So, sure. You know, <laughs> uh, when we opened at 10, 15, it was really good. You know, so <laughs> you just went on. Um, but it, it was very social, and then I got to watch all these people, like John Cleese and Bill Hardy and Tim Whitaker, all, all performing and doing stuff. Yeah, and that's the only way you can learn comedy yeah and
0: what were so what was the thing that he wrote that you performed like how did you get in do you have to audition what
1: is the yes, process you, you have did. to write a piece and audition which i did uh. and i got in with jonathan lynn who's a film director johnny lynn he did uh, nuns on the run and he did uh, uh, Vinny, oh. my cousin vinnie oh yeah that's a big yeah. movie yep yeah. and what uh what did you write do you I wrote a sketch but the one i did with john was actually based on it's called BBCBC. Yeah. And it was a BBC newsreader. Yeah. Good even here is the news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was like, and I did the weather forecast. Right. Uh, there have been, over the last few days, it's been a bit rough. There's been plague of frogs, lizards, locusts, oh, the apocalyptic balls, weather forecast. Yeah. 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 And now moving in from the northeast, yeah. frogs. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And after that, death of all the firstborn. Yeah. Sorry about <laughs> that, <laughs> Egypt. <laughs> so you just, so, you, you went biblical. It was a biblical news. It yeah, It was b- yeah. BBCBC. So that. I got you in. Uh, that got me to know a learner. McLeese came across to me and was introduced, and he asked me to join the Footlights, and i never heard of it. So he said, no, just come and audition. So we did, and we got in. Because I watched some old Peter Cook stuff. And Dudley Moore. And it just seemed
0: like, you know, the way he approached characters was something like the way you guys did. Were you guys contemporaries
1: or was he older? Peter had gone down about four years, but his voice was everywhere. Everybody Mm -hmm. taught like this because he's E.L. whisty. I'd like to be a miner, but I don't have the Latin. (laughs) I did the mining exam. They said, what is your name? And I got 50% on that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there is this weird kind of, like, tradition.
0: It's because I watched some of the... uh, the goon show. Mm. And there was just really some relentless satirizing uh, 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 between classes. Yeah. You you know, that like, you know, the Irish took a big hit uh, uh, on some of the goon show stuff.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they come out of the army. Those goon show people came out of the army. Yeah. uh, Peter Sellers and Harry Eacombe, all that lot. Uh, And then after them came Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and John, and they would be on the fringe and they were the first satirists. Yeah. And they mocked the prime minister and the army and the queen. And Was the, that like, happening when you were in college? That's when I... Just before I got there, 1962, I saw that show and it changed my life. So it... Oh, really? Yes. It, I thought I laughed so hard. I couldn't believe you were allowed to laugh at these things. Right. Because you weren't allowed to laugh at these things openly in school. Right. Or, or even say it, especially no, in a government-run f- school. Not in, not in front of... Uh, grown authority yeah yeah, yeah. Well, you said everything but you didn't so the
0: the mid 60s was a time where like a lot of that stuff broke
1: open right it was a, a time of satire in england 63 64 there was a show called "That Was the Week That Was" on television, right. which was David Frost, and so that brought down a government. It actually changed the Conservative government. The power, the power of satire on television. And
0: what what, what else was going on? Like, because I've talked to uh, yeah, I talked to musicians, and it seemed like that in London at that time in the sixties, there was just so so much
1: going on with theater, with music, like you know, the, everything was like changing very quickly. It was a renaissance, yeah. and it was because there was nothing there. There's bomb sites. There aren't another generation of people who are on television. There yeah. wasn't any television. Right. There aren't another people who are comedians. They were in the army. Yeah. So we were. We came onto an open oh, playing field and right. created art. Uh, the young and people. The young people. All of the misfits were sent off to art college. Yeah. And they all became rock and roll. Right, all the Who, uh, the Beatles, the Stones. Largely, all were in art colleges, yeah. and they came out of art colleges. Yeah, and they were the sort bad boys, and so they started early. But our, we were the same generation, and yeah. our lot went into, you know, eventually television and right. radio.
0: Oh, that's, a, that's wild. And it's, it's sort of interesting that all those guys, like when you talk about, and it's just me talking about music, when you bring up Sonny Terry and Brian McGee, which is a fairly esoteric reference, that those records came through uh, in Britain. That, like you, There must have been some premium put on, like, where'd you get that record? Like, it was must have been sort of difficult to get those records. Well, I think that was folky. That was the folk world. Uh, yeah, was, but, it
1: was kind of a bit hip for a little while. Yeah, it was folk. Right. People wore... But even the blues records, like the, the
0: thrill... Of getting though because all those bands The who and, and uh, the Stones and yeah, the Beatles not not to the same degree were guys that were influenced by American blues turned it inside out and then resold it to America it was kind of genius
1: I think the answer to that question is they came in on the banana boats into uh, Liverpool uh-huh. and they came from the you know the West Indies and they came from America. Liverpool's a port. Yeah. Like Hamburg's a so port. So the records did. So the records they... came with sailors. Yeah. We brought them in yeah, and yeah. they liked it, liked the music, and that the music spread that way. Yeah.
0: It's sort of, it, it, it kind of blows me away what was going on there. And theater was like uh, crazy then too, right?
1: Theater was an angry young men. They were protesting. It changes over from being rather polite theater of Noel coward. Yeah. And that goes and becomes right. very dated suddenly. And there's this play called Look Back in Anger by yep. John Osborne. Right. That's which it. Which yeah. changes everything. Right, and so they become. They were known as the Angry Young Men, and that's and that that happens simultaneously. That's at the same time. The rock and just roll and as to the you. Uh, teenagers and early twenties. Yeah. So,
0: so like now you have this, like this, this open. It's like the Wild West, you know, for for comedy. Like you know that the the floodgates have been open, and there's nobody stopping you
1: getting in. Yeah, you're in fact. we they were need courage to come into television. Yeah, Frost yeah. gave us all jobs. Yeah, as yeah, writers.
0: And how did you meet uh, J- uh, Jones and Palin if they were uh, at uh, at Oxford?
1: Because we I was part of the Edinburgh Festival, okay, the right. Cambridge Footlights, yeah. and they were part of the Oxford Review, so yeah. we went to check them out.
0: So when you get to Edinburgh, which is still a festival, it's the same festival every year. The one that's go still going on except now. it's yeah. huge now I know, and everybody looks there.
1: for comedians but Beyond the Fringe yeah. refers to Edinburgh Festival yeah. Fringe yeah. that's where they came out of yeah. and so we're only a few years later there's yeah. a tradition for Oxford and Cambridge to send reviews there Yeah, um, we, 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 we were part of that and that's where you met them that's where I went to see them and where I saw Palin first performing and, and Jonesy first performing and you know, you go and say hello they're yeah. the same age you're doing the same things so funny they were yeah. so funny <laughs> Payone was very funny. He was hilarious. I mean, I saw him performing for the first time. Yeah, and I never forget the sketch. I yeah, mean, it was, he was. In, he is really funny. Yeah. What was the, what was the nature of this? Well, sketch? he came on stage and he was playing an old performer. And he said, "You know, um, hello, every people. I'd like uh, very nice to be here." And he looked down, and there's this big present beside yeah. him. Said, oh, what, what's this? And he looks down. And it says, "Oh, to Mikey, from the audience with love." Oh every people <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm so touched. Yeah. I thought I was too old and out of touch and nobody cared yeah. about me anymore and I was well I don't know what to do. I can only sing my biggest hit, When Love Breaks Your Heart in a Million Tiny Pieces. <laughs> when love <laughs> And the box blew up. <laughs> it was such a great joke, and he played it so well. It was just the motion of it all, you know.
0: <laughs> so, like, did you start writing together shortly after that? Or uh, we
1: then he they're there at Oxford, and then we yeah. finish behind where it came. So we finish our courses, and then we find ourselves <laughs> all writing for the Frost Report, which is right. a, a BBC. You history. just all got hired, and so we're all hired. Yeah, yeah. we're writing. He's yeah. writing with Terry. I was writing a bit I think
0: with Graham it's so funny in my memory I don't know like I didn't know him Frost as a
1: uh, you know as a comedian well, that's, he's not very funny. He wasn't very good, but he yeah. was a good host, and he right. was very good at knowing who was funny. Right. So he, he, he got he would bring people in. Like, he brought, gave us all jobs. Right. I'm so, 23. I'm writing on this big hit show on the BBC.
0: And then, like, so that, because, like, I think one of the things that, you know, Python he, 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 outside of uh, just comedically was uh, was revolutionary was because of the, the structure of lack of structure, the, the movement you know, from sketch to sketch, piece to piece, it was uh, it obviously wasn't random, but it didn't abide by any any sort of set structure. You just well, kind of flowed lyrically, almost.
1: We got rid of punchlines. Yeah, uh, but we, don't forget, we'd written for all these other shows. Which we are were the other ones? Professional writers. The yeah, you, run is. Uh, you know Tommy Cooper. Everybody written for various other big English comedians. Did you? Didn't Frost. you
0: write a children's show for a while?
1: And then we were on a TV <laughs> show called Do Not Adjust Your Set. Who was all of you? I was asked to do it, and I asked for Mike and Terry to be with me. Yeah. And then uh, Terry Gilliam eventually came and joined us. And that's where you met Terry he's Gilliam. On, yes, he just came in on the kids show. On the kids show, and Mike and Terry hated him. <laughs> and I said, no, no, he's got something. You know, he's she, American. He's American. Yeah. What the hell do we need this American for? Yeah. And I said, well, he's, he can draw. He's funny. He's, yeah. he's very weird. He's yeah, cute. So, he <laughs> so I persuaded them. <laughs>
0: yeah, to bring uh, in Terry.
1: And then, yeah, absolutely.
0: And so that I think that seems to make good
1: sense to me that you all sort of started to explore possibilities on a children's show. It was nice we had a children's show because we decided we wouldn't talk down to children. we yeah. just do what we found funny. But we couldn't use blue, right? Which is also a very good discipline. Yeah, it's so easy to just be rude. Yeah, uh, for shock. So you had to be—you had to sweeten it. It wasn't Instant. never sweet. It's kind of in your face. It's still a bit sort of odd. Yeah, and we won lots of awards. It was very popular, and then it was on at five twenty-five, and so a lot of people would come home from work early to watch it. Grown-ups. Grown-ups. Yeah, including uh-huh. John. And Graham, who were writing movies for uh, Peter Sellers at the time, they they, really? they would stop and watch
0: our show. They, they w- were... What movies did they write for Peter? Magic uh, Christian?
1: W- yes. Uh, oh, the Terry Southern bit. John's in that. Yeah. And so is Graham, I think, in a scene. They were rewriting Terry Southern uh, things, and... Uh, Maybe some other things for Frost. There was a Peter Cook one, The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. They might have been involved in that. There were there were serious you know scriptwriters, but
0: they um, locked into the to the children's show because they're like they something. watched the children's
1: show because John said it was the funniest thing on television. So they wanted to just
0: laugh. What were you doing that was different than what might have been thought of as a children's show?
1: Um, I think it was just more in your face kind of python thing it yeah. wasn't it was kind of silly yeah it was very silly yeah and then we had this group called the bonzo dog doodah band uh-huh. who were on every week who yeah. was from an art school really weird group yeah uh and i think that the whole thing was very sort of it was kind of funny it was only about 25 minutes and the kids loved it the kids loved it. And then the adults loved it, too. Which was, and we won awards. And
0: That's a, that's an amazing feat. Well, it, culturally, that seems to be the, the drive of the movie industry now. It's like, if you can get kids and grown-ups to enjoy the thing, then it's good. It, 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 like, uh, Adventure Time is a, an anime. A lot of the animated stuff's like that now. Right. Have you ever had... You know, people who watched it as a kid, who who went on to creative professions, come up to you and say, like, that changed my
1: entire view of things? People remember that show yeah. of a certain age. Yeah. But then there's Python, and then there's, I mean, you know, it depends what age you come in. Yeah. You know, what you tune into. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore had their own series called yeah. Not Only But Also, and yeah. that was really funny. Yeah. The BBC wiped it. Why? Save tape. Oh, oh really? Yeah. It's so, like two-inch Ampex. They wiped it. Yeah. So only the bits that remain are on film because they oh. shot some film bits, like The Leaping Nuns of Norwich, yeah. which is p- <laughs> Peter on a trampoline, <laughs> popping up and down. <laughs> yeah, The Leaping Nuns of Norwich. Very, very funny. <laughs> he was hilarious. I knew him. I loved him. He's adorable. It was, he was. He was unique because he was the only one who did improv nobody else the improv wasn't existing in our day it was all much. scripted but peter could improvise an entire cabaret oh really yeah absolutely and he was unique in that way he was very unique in that way and everybody did his voices and he he went on television and yeah he was groundbreaking and do you had do you ha- did you eventually uh, have a relationship with him yeah yeah we went we got great to be great friends we were on a film Yellowbeard where we had a lot of fun Uh, We went up the Nile together with John Cleese and Stephen Fry. We had this great trip up the Nile. You went up the Nile? Yeah. Just as a vacation, an adventure? to celebrate his 100th his hundredth wedding with his wife uh, who he now doesn't refer to uh, took <laughs> Not about in a good way. 40 <laughs> friends yeah. up the Nile for three weeks in a, in a, like a on deal, a boat. On a boat. It's yeah. an amazing time. So it's like you know you got Peter Cook every night to yeah. make you laugh. You've got William Goldman was on there. You know really? Stephen Fry would sit on the deck every day and read this children's book called Bunter on the Nile <laughs> at tea time. <laughs> I mean, it was just great. Oh, that's amazing. That was amazing. Plus egypt is the most fantastic place have you ever been no oh my god it's like if you go down into those tombs they've only just been revealed so it's like fresh paint on the walls yeah oh really because oh, well, well. they finished and they killed them you know, but yeah. They, yeah, they sealed it <laughs> so <laughs> it is an extraordinary it's like alien world i can't yeah it, it, and that was what year was that and then uh boo uh 90 possibly uh, three. Oh wow and, and it, 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 92, perhaps. I can't imagine what it's like. Uh, I maybe guess you can just me. go see it. But I, I think there's certain parts are dangerous still, but I think it's just the most wonderful trip I ever took. And how far did you go? Where did it start? We went all the way up from um, from uh, the, what do you call the. Cairo. Yeah. And then we got on the boat there, and we went all the way up to the first cataract where there's a dam. Yeah. And so then we got on a bus, and that's two hours further up, you go to Abu Simbel, which is a a lake, uh, flooded, they flooded it, but they raised this temple up 300 feet. Yeah. So it's still, the sun still hits on the longest day and hits the pharaoh through that cave. Oh, wow. Um, And it's, yeah, no, it is an extraordinary Place to visit. What do you make of it, like mystically? Do you, well, do it's you, five thousand years ago. It's crazy, right? It, it's very long time ago, and they're, they're building these pyramids. Yeah. um And are you a superstitious, mystical person in any way? Do you y- think that they're not so much? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's very interesting. This is our, our early cultures, you yeah. know, and uh, uh, what they're doing. Um, and they're, they're doing hieroglyphic writing. We only really recently discovered how to read what they were writing. And hieroglyphics are back with emojis. You know, no, it's funny, there, full there, circle. Is, I noticed that too. <laughs> yeah. We're going backwards. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be completely primitive but completely equipped <laughs> yeah. with with technology.
0: Yeah, that's what's I happening.
1: Actually, I was, there's a thing on that. On the web, you can actually translate your email into Egyptian. And I did it. I'd send it to people.
0: (laughs) It's good, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And they were probably like, do I have these on my phone? How come I don't know what it's saying? Dear Pharaoh. Yeah. (laughs) So uh,
1: how did uh, the, the Python deal happen? The Python deal happened because John and Graham were watching our show. And they, John had been offered a show for the BBC, a late night show, on a Sunday night where yeah. there wasn't a show. Yeah. And he, I don't think he wanted to do it with Graham alone, and he didn't want to be a star himself, so he wanted Michael Palin. So he said to Michael, and Michael, we'd been offered another show, and, and so we all met together. So it's like a, a strange mix of the 1948 show meets Do Not Adjust Your Set. Yeah. And so... We said, oh, well, we'll just do this show until our studio's ready to do the other show we're going to do, which is 9 o'clock on ITV for three quarters of an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So we never got to that, right? But uh, so it's like they didn't. Like, and we went to the BBC. They said, "What do you want to do?" And we said, mm, "Don't know." Yeah. And they said, "You're going to have uh, music, mm, maybe." Yeah, you're going to have uh, film. Oh, film, film's a good idea. Yeah. We'll have film. Yeah. Uh, and they said, <laughs> "Oh, just go away and make 13. Yeah, that's what they said. Yeah. <laughs> and they didn't care. They didn't watch us. <laughs> How much of the,
0: their culture? Because you know, you watch a lot of uh, Python, and yeah, it's sort of timeless. But there was a lot going on that 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 was that was pretty radical i mean was it happening around you were you guys so
1: insulated well i mean i'd been in london i think since 65 so i've been living there you know and then was 66 and then the beatles and then there was the summer of love did you go see the beatles i never saw the beatles uh, when i was working for frost Uh, george came on and was doing tm transcendental at that point is that where you met him uh, no, I didn't meet him till about after the Beatles. I met him in 75 here in Hollywood. Uh-huh. Uh, the screening of the Holy Grail. Yeah. At the old Directors Guild. But, um, you know, we weren't really part of rock and roll. I mean, we sort of... But the know, culture looked, was very permissive it, w- w- creatively, right? I mean, it, well, I, it, For us in television, it was totally. Right. And we got to make... Uh, with nobody, there was no time slot. There was right. nothing on television at 10.30. <laughs> so that's for the start. Second is... It's on late at night, nobody's watching, and we were in colour by three months. Yeah. Otherwise, it would look really dated. Right. And then, more importantly, nobody told us what to do, and we didn't know what to do, so we just did it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And and you that you you just figured out how how did the structure unfold? Why, how did you it's, decide? Just we to, we had lots of conversations. We couldn't agree on anything, so we just started to write it, and then we would just start to put things on a board. You say, well, we're we're doing thirteen shows. Well, that's a bit like that one, so let's move it over here or put things together. And um, you know, we the, the, I think the fortuitous thing is we got Gilliam. Yeah, and Gilliam does all these links. Yeah, the, and w- the weird like animated that link. weird very peculiar, interesting art style. Yeah. It ma- it frames it all. And yeah. It makes it look like it knows what it, it has some shape. Right. And I think that's the very fortuitous thing. And then he would just like, he, I
0: think the thing that I always remember is that, you know, in between sketches, he would just cut to just uh, beats of like maybe crazy. I like to bang bricks together, you know, like just these moments. Right. That would just kind of recur for no reason. There, there was, because in, in my mind, in American comedy, there was there's no real tradition of absurdism that that is as defined as some of the stuff you did, and I think that 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 seems to come from uh, from England. If I
1: uh, yes, there was absurd theatre. There's out the Albert, the Males Brothers. There was a sort of, there's an absurd tradition and a nonsense tradition from Lear, Edward Lear, you know, going on. Yeah, uh, but ours. Was I think because we could, right. <laughs> we were fucking about. You know, it's like it wasn't intellectual. Well, it was just with it, the well, way you. Well, it was sort of. I mean, it was. We don't want to be mistaken for yeah. a show that says and now something completely different, and yeah. then play a music yeah. song. Right. So we adapted their very slogan and turned it against them. Right. So I think we like to play with our audience. Yeah. And yeah. Say, well, this will right. really this will screw them up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I and mean, it's like the three-sided record. Yeah. Don't but- tell them. <laughs> yeah. just doesn't play. Here, you'll love this side. Yeah. yeah. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. People are seriously disturbed by that. They still, yeah. they still haven't recovered from <laughs> the shock of not finding the record yeah. side. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, so, it's so
0: weird, the, the sort of things that, as I think about it now, when I was watching it when I was 13 or whatever, the, the stuff that sticks in your mind, you, you know, the, the Sam Peckinpah Film Festival, that was insane as a kid, you know, with the, no
1: fingers, and no the bleed. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Sam Peckinpah's Salad Days. Yeah. <laughs> and there was this innocuous Julian Slade musical yeah, called yeah. Salad Days. Yeah, where right. They all, anyone for tennis. Yeah, right. You know, and it's all very the jolly, All very it. 20s. Yeah. <laughs> and then with Sam Peckinpah films it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, 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 the <laughs> tennis racket's thrown, it cuts somebody's head off, and there's blood <laughs> everywhere, you know. <laughs> I think we were, <laughs> I, I think we were, I think we just pushed each other. You know, if you're in a gang yeah. and nobody else is in charge, you go, and you don't want to do anything that's been done. Right, it's the other thing. So you are, that drives, yeah, that's you're important. You're advancing it a little bit because oh, no, I know that's a bit, that's a bit obvious. That's a bit too Ronnie's. We'll send it to them. Yeah. if the sketch is a bit obvious. So, right, but I, but I think you know, just putting in things like Gilliam stands there with a ferret through his head <laughs> as a Viking says, however, <laughs> and then you move on. You go what is that <laughs> but it's and you it, don't need to answer that question no right but it, it thrills people at home because they're not seeing people do that well
0: i think that was like if anything speaks to the time and the freedom you had the idea of not doing anything that's happened before it creatively is is profound like you know like in you guys were able to do it
1: i think we had the opportunity and we ex- we did use it was it always a fight I mean, no. I mean, it's a fight because you want your material on. Right. And we would argue about whether the chair should be a comfy chair or a straight back chair or yeah. a hard back chair. Very seriously. Yeah. But it's because you care about your picture of what may be funny. So we did, you know, we argued entirely all the time yeah. about whether the material is good enough, where it should stop here. And I think that's healthy. Sure, of that's course. That's like, yeah. and great criticism. Yeah. You get great criticism. People are saying, you know, I thought for the first page that was really funny. Yeah. But it stopped being funny. So let's us, you know, we'd move them around or we'd just, you know, together we'd all barnstorm the thought. So it was like by aggressive committee. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't... Um, it, there were no emotions involved. No, right, right. It was like people were if British very serious. Or better, British were better at <laughs> that. No, emotions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they've gone all sort of touchy-feely now. I blame Diana. You know, once they started caring about some uh, upper-class git, <laughs> <yeah, laughs> running into a war with an Arab in Paris. You know, you've got it. it's all over for the British. You know? <laughs> They're just the same as everybody else. Uh, Bring out your hankies, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that was the end of it. That was, for me, the end of it. But yeah. I was here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got out. Yes, I've learned. <laughs> you, you saw it coming I saw down tougher world of America. <laughs> well, there's no sympathy for people just because they're sick or poor yeah, on any level. <laughs> on yeah. any
0: level at all. So there was no emotions involved, but th- there was competition and and just sort of you're kind- constantly uh, hard on yourselves to do the best product, basically.
1: I believe so. And yeah. that's why John left after the third series, because he thought we were beginning to repeat ourselves. Well, and he'd had enough, and, and was, he was quite right. And off he went. And he read he rent "Defaulted Towers." Yeah. And we did a mini series, half a series, and then I left because I said, "Look, it's not it's not the same without John." There was there's no the tensions. So you, were, were you good. were you upset when John left? Was the rest uh, of the crew like, "Why would you do this? We got a good thing going." I think we were disappointed in various levels. Graham was absolutely desperate because he needed the money. Yeah. So we did do a second a little mini series. It's not it's got some funny bits in. And then we said, stop that. And then what was good was that John was happy to work with us on movies. Right. So then we wrote the Holy Grail. Did you all write it? Yeah. Yeah. And
0: that was sort of, uh, uh, that must have been a challenge to, you know, you had a story
1: and you had to follow it. We didn't have a story. You did When you look at the first drafts of the Holy Grail, it's set in Harrods, (laughs) people in the ant department and toupee department, and and so it's all over the place, and then when we came back, we said, no, 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 stop all that, it's got to be the story of King Arthur, it's got to be medieval, he's got to be looking for the Grail, you know, uh, so that gave us some kind of shape but again we still had various disparate things happening yeah I yeah. had to put it into shape when I did spam a lot yeah. I finally made some sense out of it <laughs> and put a shape on because its <laughs> it's clearly the seven samurai you you get the guys together you round them up then you go on the quest right. you know? but, but the, <laughs> the, the movie was in any bloody shape you know we moved it around a lot but Graham was consistent he moved him Graham through. was consistent and you know yeah. uh, we understand quest yeah <laughs> that, that'll do is the plot he, 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 and
0: Graham like in uh, also it, it's interesting how aware you all were of the you know the characters even if they were only for a minute or two who would play them like it it seems like there was how did that sort of happen what did you guys cast each other or was it uh, you know i made
1: this and i'm doing this We always wrote first. Yeah. Finished the writing. Uh Finished the editing. So nobody could hang on to bits they loved because they were going to be in it. Yeah. So then we would cast. Yeah. And usually it was pretty obvious. You know, Cleese played the hard, arrogant, nasty people. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, um, Terry Jones played the frumpy little women. (laughs) Yeah. Graham played, you know, sort of slightly bewildered people, you know, like Brian and the King Arthur. Right. Uh, And the rest of it would say Eric or Mike. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we would say. And show so yeah, because like, we played those little, you know, middle class working class people. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. enjoyed playing. Yeah, the, the doofuses, the enlightened yeah. doofuses. Like. Eric or Mike?
0: <laughs> what, was what was what was Mike's bit in
1: the in the grill where they're just playing in the dirt? Yeah, he's in the mud. Yeah, so, well. <laughs> Yeah, you, know, you could have called me. Yeah, you know, I didn't know. That. A king comes along. Yeah, oh, yeah. king, eh? Very nice. <laughs> and who voted for you then? You don't vote for kings. Oh, how oh, charming! How did he become queen? king? Well, the lady of the lake. threw, oh, nice motion, in ponds, throwing swords. It's no system for basis for a system of government.
0: Right, right. You yeah. know, yeah, the enlightened <laughs> it's just guy. Terrific!
1: It's <laughs> wonderful <laughs> stuff. <laughs> it's really abuse. Oh, did you have fun doing those things? Writing very much so, yeah. I think. I think the actual filming was always miserable because we were up in Scotland and it was wet and damp and we yeah. didn't have enough money, but it was funny. And then you guys did, it was the Ruttles after the grill? It was, right? After Python split up, I had my own TV series called Rutland Weekend Television. Yeah. And I did it with Neil Innes and Neil would do a song or two a week. Yeah. And he would send me the tapes and he sent me one and it was so Beatly. Yeah. And I suddenly had this thought of the Ruttles. Yeah. And I had this idea of the guy talking to camera and the camera moving away, yeah. and him starting to run after it. And I thought, that's funny. <laughs> and so we sold, showed that on Saturday Night Live <laughs> uh, And uh, we had letters yeah. to the Ruttles.. Yeah. And Lauren said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I think I'm doing a documentary on these guys." He said, "We'll do it for NBC." Oh, and that's uh, right. Uh, yeah. I saw that. The, so, what,
0: we're in it for the... We're only, what, what was the title of the documentary? The all You
1: Need Is Cash. All You Need Is Cash. <laughs> yeah. And I did a sequel called Can't Buy Me Lunch. Yeah. <laughs> where I went around people like Tom Hanks <laughs> and Gary Shandling. Yeah. And they talked about the influence of the ruttles on their lives. Yeah. And oh, Tom that. Hanks cried. Oh, that's great. Just brilliant. I mean, I, I would go around in my Mac as the interviewer and interview yeah. them. Yeah. And yeah. There, there was some brilliant stuff on that.
0: How When you were... Like, when did you start to feel... You know, along these lines, because yeah, I think out of all the the crew, you know, America and you as a comedic personality seem to embrace each other, and and the the American comedic community, you sort of like you you seem to be the most active in kind of like you, you know being the guy from Python who's like hanging out with Shanling, hanging out with right. these people. When did that start to happen? It must have been sort
1: of an overwhelming. Uh, amount of respect that came your way, and it, it must have been surprising initially. It was very surprising. It happened in 74 when we first came and opened the Holy Grail, and we were trapped in the theater by 2,000 people. Yeah. Coming with trying to get their coconuts signed. Yeah. And then we met Belushi and people, Aykroyd. Seven, what is 76? 75, 76. Seven, yeah. And then I think I first did 76, I thirsted SNL. So I hosted
0: it. Like second season? Like...
1: Second season, second show. Oh, wow. And. And I, you know, I loved I love comedy people. Sure. And that, that, yeah. and so it was it was fascinating to be in their world. Yeah, I think I hosted it four times in the seventies. And and what was it? What was the?
0: Did, did it seem? The writing process there compared to, to Python or what,
1: Yeah. The drinking The drug problem. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah it, they would work on a Tuesday night, and they'd smoke enormous amounts of marijuana yeah. in their offices. I yeah. mean, the idea that you'd have a joint at the BBC <laughs> is unheard of. But they had all these offices barricaded off, yeah. and they'd write all night. yeah And it was completely different. And they'd never... Because ours is a writer's commune. yeah The writers were in charge. The yeah. writers did everything. But theirs is much more of a, a performer's show. Right. And they would build the sets just on a pitch <laughs> and, they said, this yeah. is, uh, and they would never re- have time to rewrite and you never had time to rehearse or learn it you just read it off cards yeah. because we would rehearse for five days yeah. our, our python shows yeah. so we were word perfect
0: and you were also shooting on film weren't you a lot we, of the we times we would go and shoot
1: for, for, for all of the series on film there were inserts throughout yeah. Yeah. so we had to write the whole lot first yeah
0: you can't just kind of you know, no. do that the so day carefully after carefully
1: planned right. very carefully planned um, whereas, you know, um, Sandy Night was live. You yeah, know, it was this live yeah. um, vibe in the New York and, you know, quite different.
0: And how, who did you sort of gravitate towards when you, like, who'd you hang out with? Oh,
1: well, I love Gilda. Yeah. Uh, and I, I liked Aykroyd very much. He was the only one I thought could actually have been in Python because he was a good writer and a great performer. Yeah. And he was very like what we did, which yeah. is writing and performing. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, Bill Murray came in. I, That's so funny. I hang, hung with Chevy who was hurt because he'd been Gerald Ford and was in bed oh really Um, (laughs) yeah I mean you know New York is great I mean it was just wonderful to I mean, I've been through London for ten years. So yeah. Now New York was a nice place to go. to. But I must—I have, have to
0: assume that they were like just like you know when you got here, when Python got here, they're like it was a completely new thing and completely different than anything that was happening in America. And it just sort of like this
1: is—they were kind of fans when we first went right. along yeah. to the show. Yeah. Uh, they were kind of like gobsmacked because yeah. it had just come on PBS as well as the movie opened. So it was right. a perfect storm in New York. Oh, it's great. Yeah. And where'd you meet Robin Williams? I met Robin Williams in England, in London, in a nightclub. In a, it's called a comic strip. It was at the top of a strip club uh-huh. in uh, 1980, and he'd been filming Popeye in Malta. Oh, yeah. And somebody said, "You got to see this. You got to see this guy." Oh, have so you, you got to meet him. him. You went to see him perform first. I went to see him perform and he just killed. And then we met and then we went out to dinner and, you know, he moved in forever. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, I loved him. I mean, you just, you can't believe anybody could be that quick.
0: Yeah, it's a real loss, you know. But I guess, uh, what do you know? I don't want to bring the whole interview down, but I, I miss him.
1: Well, he had a <laughs> brain disease. It was yeah, Louis, I know. Yeah, Lewy bodies disease. It is terrible. And I wondered because I, in the first one, I knew him. I'd just follow him around all the nightclubs. Yeah, he and me would go out yeah. and he'd have enormous amounts of cocaine and go on the road, keep going yeah. on till about four in the morning. Yeah, when he's finally he would seize up and no longer be funny. Yeah, because of the dreaded white powder. Yeah, yeah, just I'm like. Thank God we can go to bed now. <laughs> <laughs> But I wondered if eventually, because I'm comedy observing hosted. people have these brain problems, whether that in fact helped it or caused it or, you know, yes, yeah. I, I think we will find out that
0: it's not think, very good for you. I think that's true. I think that's what with with, I, I mean, I tend to think that with uh, uh, MS as well. There are these neurological problems that come from uh, uh, I'm
1: sure it's not good. But no matter what, even if it's just cocaine, what else is chopped yeah. into it, you know sure. what I mean? It's right. not... Right. Really, it's going straight into your yeah. brain. It's not so. like it's FDA approved. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Yeah. I mean, this is California. You never know, you know. <laughs> and was it, you were never a drug guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding? If it's, I'm English. I'll take anything that's going, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I wasn't... I couldn't afford what he could afford. You know?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so after... Gilliam went on to do the, the amazing movies. You did a lot of those movies with him. You know, acted in a couple, right? One. One. Oh, Just one? One's Just enough. A, Munchausen, yes. Munchausen. Oh my God, yeah. Munchausen. I don't know how he put that shit together.
1: Oh, why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was. It was six months of hell. I said I'd rather go back to boarding school <laughs> than be back on that movie. <laughs> It's complete chaos but he is wonderful I love him but he's he only's happy when there's chaos oh he's one of those guys oh totally it's so like the president he's an animator yeah do you trust Walt Disney Right. no <laughs> they're moving bits and pieces around in yeah. their big pictures and they have complete so, control of it so if you're an actor yeah on a show you're just a bit in the scene you know? right. right oh right so it's, yeah, it doesn't matter if you're there's dangling no human... from something no or yeah. what do you mean you fell off <laughs> 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 don't fall off I've, I haven't got the shot yet
0: <laughs> and the but, where did you find the time? I mean, this is what your third book you wrote, but this one's a memoir.
1: But you've written several books. Yeah, this is. A, I, I wrote a chore diary called "The Greedy Bastard yeah. Diary" in about 2003 because I was on the road. But um, this is my autobiography yeah. because I'm getting to that age where you go, well, you better get it down now or yeah. you won't remember anything. <laughs> and oh, uh, yeah. that's an issue. You don't r- seem to be having any of those issues. Well, but Jonesy's gone. Yeah. Mentally. Yeah. You can't speak. And that's really sad. And so, you know, so I just, anyway, it's the 50th anniversary next year of Python. Yeah. So I thought, they're going to ask us questions. I better get my thoughts down. So, yeah. And I thought, this is a good time to reflect on the eve of that. And so I went off to France and I wrote and wrote and I would would just, it was, it's very good. I mean, I'm 75. It's a very good stage to look back at your life and think, what the fuck happened? Look at this. Yeah. How weird is that? And I was saying to my wife today, the first 25 years were preparing and then we did Python when I was 26 and for 25 years we did all of that. Yeah. 25, the last 25 years, I came to America. Yeah. I've been in America. Yeah, it's like a three different portions of your life are quite different. It's yeah, in that, that, the
0: 25 in America, you you sort of adjusted to, you know, figuring out how to, you know, maintain your stature as a as humorist and also function in show business very successfully.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was kind of strange to be an, an immigrant at 50. You uh-huh. know, I mean, what am I going to do? But it was better than staying in England where they want to pigeonhole you, right? And then I. You know, finally we we got to make spam a lot, which is really. Yeah, how did. Like, before
0: we go on sure. to that, uh, in writing, because I've written a bit myself, did you find yourself, like, in the process of writing, like, discovering memories and being moved by.
1: Writing the book. Yeah. Yes. No, I. It's kind of crazy, right? I didn't go to a publisher. I thought, I'm going to write the book for me. I want to know what I think and what I feel or what my life feels like to me. And then I'll sell it afterwards, yeah. if they want it. But I, I don't want to find I'm owe a book to somebody
0: or have an editor on you, and you know that kind b- before yeah. I
1: knew what I wanted.
0: Yeah. And what were some of the things, like in terms of looking back at your whole life, both for you know, in darkness and light and whatever in history, you know, what were some of the things where you were like, oh my god, I, I really hadn't seen it that way.
1: I think what it became for me, I had to try and discover the subject of the book. And what it became for me, the subject of the book, was that generation. How odd that generation was coming out of war. I I say always, uh, when I was born, Hitler was trying to kill me. Yeah. And now my name's on Mars. Yeah. Because it's on Curiosity, the Uh rover. Yeah. And that's kind of, whoa, excuse me? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's extraordinary because, you know, it's uh, that, that arc... Is an, is an amazing time. Yeah. And during which time our science has exploded, our knowledge of science, of the universe, and what we've been able to do. People into the moon. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, it, it, this is an extraordinary time. It's it's. One of the benefits of peace.
0: Yeah, right. And now, it, isn't it sort of interesting that with all those advances and with that sort of uh, hindsight, you know, from a, a, you know, a real world war, that you know we are now entering, you know, these cultural uh, tribalism again and now all this insanity that the human animal, uh, you know, is is so significantly flawed that progress is uh, is not uh, you know what everybody sees as a positive thing.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's sad. People don't know what war is. You see, I say I, I joke about the younger generation. They think a disaster is when they lose the internet connection. <laughs> Some yeah. people are trying to bomb you. Yeah, but war is the really serious thing, and it goes on a lot on the planet. Yeah, and, always, and you know, now we're getting people who divide us because for their own power. Uh, and and I, that's awful.
0: A, but isn't it surprising, like, because I, I mean, even like you don't talk about class much in America, but do, are I guess it. You know, when I really think about you know history, I mean, it's not surprising how stupid and easily led people are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, except they're fighting back. You see, television television is very powerful. Um, And people can talk, and the Internet's very powerful, and they can fight back. I mean, who knew that it would be possible to subvert America by these idiotic, bloody Russian KGB? Who knew they were? They're not that smart. Yeah. And also, they don't even have democracy, so it serves them kind of right. Yeah. But uh, And they will lose because it's better off to be here than there yeah no matter what <laughs> yeah so yeah, go fuck for the yourselves. time being yeah, yeah. yeah
0: and do you think like do you ever did you also think about how like you know the the media landscape was much more uh, intimate and smaller you know back when you were coming up that uh, you, you know you could get all eyes upon you in a way over time and now it's uh, so fragmented that i wonder it's hard to know how anybody becomes successful it's usually
1: not because of their creativity necessarily yeah, I mean, there's many more famous people, and <laughs> yeah. the, and the trouble is that America has gone from the pursuit of happiness to the pursuit of fame and money, and yeah. they're not the same things at all. That's true,
0: a- and you seem to be pretty happy. Me? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm very happy. Yeah. Uh, but I came to I came and pursued happiness in America. Yeah. And Was I found it. it. Is <laughs> it
0: courted? It. it a choice though, or you just find your? Do you, do you battle anything? You know, like do, are there days where you're like, Ugh.
1: oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, you know, um, it, but it's it is. I mean, I always look on the bright side. It's not a bad motto, no. But uh, I, you know, I I, I came here. I, I settled down here. I lived here. I put a child through school. I had a normal how old's your, life. How old your kid? She's now twenty-eight. Mm-hmm. But you know, she went to college, and I loved all that. I loved taking a kid to school. Your you wife's know. American. My from Chicago. She's oh, yeah. American, and uh, spend time in Chicago. Yeah. It's great, Absolutely. right? It's a great wonderful city. town. It's lovely great. Town. We open Spam a lot there. Oh, he did. Yeah, I, I picked it. I, they wanted to open in Boston, and said, "No bloody way." Chicago, the only place, because they don't give a thing about um, New York. You can say they that. don't care. Okay, yeah, but they, you know, they in, in Boston, they have a slight, you know, chip on their sure, shoulder about sure. New York, and they're always looking over their shoulder. Yeah, but in Chicago, no, this is the people who don't wear shirts in the winter. Oh yeah, and they all smoke still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, that's like the French.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nobody told the French. And also, they have a pretty, a pretty decent theater.
1: World in Chicago, totally. Yeah, a very good theater world, and they're they're just very funny people.
0: Did you did you assume that you know when you you know what was the impetus like when you said I'm going to make Spam a lot? You know what what was where did the idea come from?
1: Well, we'd been looking. Uh, John Dupre and I had written a a musical about cricket, which we'd done on radio for, uh, and we were looking for a theme and a subject, and we were here. And uh, I suddenly thought, well, I see the Grail is a pretty amazing subject because it's like, it's a comic musical. It's a bit like the Ring of the nibelungs <laughs> You know, it's, it's the Arthurian legend. Yeah. So you, you can take the large and then mock it as yeah. the small. Right. And also because we had no horses, you can actually do it on stage. Yeah. And because it's sketchy, it keeps stopping and feels like it should be a song. Yeah. I mean, we, I'm not dead yet. Yeah. It's always been a song. Surely, <laughs> yeah. you just never got to write it until the musical. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and in and,
0: and in terms of writing songs, like when you saw, at the beginning of the book, you talk about uh, always look on the bright side of life, and, and I had no idea that it had been recorded by so many different artists, and that you know it is sort of in the rotation of uh, of songs that uh, people do at weddings and do at
1: funerals, funerals more large. Yeah, yes, and that's true. That's number true one fact. at funerals. It's really? a true fact. It's the number one song at funerals in the UK. Which is kind of cute i like yeah. that don't you
0: yeah it's amazing
1: uh i, I yeah it's they don't pay
0: mm-hmm. no i know <laughs> but you know it's sort of like happy birthday you, you, you know you can't how are you gonna monitor oh, oh, they
1: pay happy birthday
0: no i don't think so anymore i think it got released into oh, public domain right. recently <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, they're not charging parties there's no one making
1: rounds it was seriously considered as the alternative national anthem in england <laughs> and so they sing it whenever they're losing which is always great and in fact when the english were playing the germans at soccer football soccer, yeah uh, and the uh, Germans were losing in yeah. Berlin. Yeah, whole of the German stadium sang "Always look on the bright side of life." In uh, English, oh, that's amazing! Isn't that great? Yeah, I love that. And people say Germans have no sense of humor. Rubbish, <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> Listen, the English wouldn't have done that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you had a pretty
0: long relationship with George Harrison. Yeah. Now it, it, the Beatles thing is sort of, uh, you know, what? What was your experience like knowing a Beatle? Yeah, because, like, I when I interviewed Paul. There was I had very weird mixed feelings because there's nothing quite like the the Beatles. <laughs> there's like you know, it, I tend to I said to him, I think we know we know Beatles songs prenatally for some reason. That there's a there's a groove in our brains that just waiting for them to be put in.
1: And they were our generation, so we knew which album came next and when it came we'd run down and get the next Beatle album. Yeah. And yeah. that changed the culture completely. Before yeah. then, people wouldn't have bought albums of yeah. rock and roll. So um they were You know, they were the, they were an extraordinary group, really creative. Were you friends with all of them? I know Ringo a little uh, now. I see him quite a bit. Um, I never met John. Uh, I've, I've, um, I've, I've seen, uh, Paul a lot more recently, and he's he's awfully nice. He's really sweet. I mean, uh, memorials and things. He said, "Come on, you need a hug." (laughs) He's he's, he's so wonderfully down to earth and such a genius songwriter too. He's very funny. Well, that was the secrets of the Beatles. They were funny. Yeah. Yeah, when they came to America. Everybody knew Ringo's name because he was funny. Right. He had a funny nose, funny haircut, and he was funny. Yeah. And that's what made the Beatles, I think, when they first hit America. Yeah. All those press conferences. Sure, sure. He's funny. Yeah. Yeah, they sing a lot. They
0: were uh, hilarious. And uh, very identifiable personalities very quickly. They, you know, and they, you know, and they knew how to be themselves, you know, as opposed to be cryptic and weird and, you know. (laughs) They were being on the road
1: since they were 14. You know, so crazy. Yeah. So they they done it, and they they, and then you know it 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 got very heavy for them, and the split ups and. You know, so I, I was. It was interesting for me because I sort of studied it. Yeah. You know, to write the Ruttles, yeah. I had to learn everything about them and right. write them. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I even played Paul. Oh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And that was quite interesting because his Linda was very pro that. She loved it. Oh, she did. Yeah. She got a kick Paul out of it. Paul was a little bit less, you know, keen on being. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, he's now nice about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> And George seemed to be
1: a, a very spiritual guy all the way till, you know, the end, huh? Well, no, George was always uh, those two, both very naughty, the naughtiest boy in the room and the most spiritual boy in the yeah. room, too. He was both. Yeah. Um, uh, but he encouraged the ruttles. I mean, he, he was behind it. He showed me all sorts of footage. Oh, he did? Oh, yeah. yeah. He showed me a film called The Long and Winding Road, uh-huh. which they could never agree to release uh-huh. because they couldn't agree uh which bits to cut mm-hmm. they hated some of them all hated at some bit or another uh-huh. especially the end you yeah know, the let it be tapes so
0: tapes. it was really about the so the, it never the coming apart yeah it was yeah. but
1: it never got released so i my film was a sort of parody of a film that never got released and then they used all that material eventually when they did the 10 part anthology at the end of the 90s yeah
0: and with your group, with your band, mm-hmm. uh, you guys toured, you know, a few years mm-hmm. ago. Um, and uh, was that – do you – how – are you still in touch with Mike? Yeah. And, and you
1: still – and John and you are okay? Yeah. We yeah. went on the roads for three three tours, John yeah. and I, like two years ago. We yeah. had a wonderful time. Um, yeah, I mean uh, – we didn't sure we came we did a final farewell show at the O2 in London yeah. in 2014. Yeah. And it was just in time because Jonesy was just losing his memory and it was it was a final performance. We did 10 shows at O2 18,000 people a night sold out. Yeah. And it was good fun. Yeah. It was nice. Yeah. And we meet because we have a business. You know, we're business in common. We have to deal with business a bit. Oh, you do? Yeah. For so, But it's only like once a year we'll have to deal with it. But Sort
0: out some numbers?
1: Well, it's like, what are we going to do? And everybody says, no, oh, I don't want to do anything. All right, well, let's do that then.
0: <laughs> 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 Does, is it surprising to you that uh, that Michael
1: took a, a sort of non-comedic route in, in a way? I think it's a sadness to me because he was really Uh, He was a comedian that got away. Yeah. And even now, when he comes to visit me sometimes here, you'll look rather wistful. Yeah. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, because he's one of the funniest performers. And he's such a funny writer. Yeah. Um, but you know he's got him made his life as this sort of national treasure. Yeah. Uh and he's you know he's famous he'll be Sir Michael any minute. Oh yeah. I hope they give it him next year. Yeah. Are you sir? Or you're sir. No. Not yet. Oh no no. Why no. will he get it before you? Well he's already a CBE. He's oh. worked his way up. He oh, was okay. an OBE then CBE. You know you have to you have to be <laughs> Oh yeah. To late in line. You have to be polite. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. not polite. No. You, you, there's a line of in progression. Fact, yeah. Prince Charles asked me to be his jester one night in Scotland at Billy Connolly's because I was making him laugh. Yeah. And I said, why would I, why would I want a fucking awful job like that? Is that? Was that even a job anymore? I, mean, well, I guess- No, of course it's not. But I mean, he laughed his ass off that I said, why would I want a fucking awful job like that? Yeah. Making you be your jester. Give me a break. It's so
0: I mean, you, you always hear about that, that, that there, it was a job at one time. But it's important job
1: because if Trump had a jester, he would be much healthier. I don't think he has a sense of humor, really. No, he doesn't. But the point is, the jesters are the ones that say the things you're not allowed to say. Exactly, They'll get your head cut off if you're an advisor. Right. But if you're a jester... Yeah. And that's why it's so important in Shakespeare. You see that the role of the jester is to tell... Henry VIII, you go and tell him. Yeah. Oh, no, we'll get the jester to tell him. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, to, to, to tell uh, the truth
0: to the fa- well, that's truth to what, power. That's what comedy is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, uh, Trump could not, ha- his ego could not handle a jester. So, you know, it's got to be on the, it's on the shoulders of Colbert <laughs> yeah, and well, uh, that's, Mar and That's on true, on, uh, except Kimmel he doesn't listen to them. Yeah, no.
1: They're mocking Some him. Some of them get it. through.
0: Baldwin got so. through. I think Sessions is his jester. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Man. He looks
1: like a jester, doesn't he? he? does, exactly. yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> They're all evil,
1: though. There's no... It's just a bunch of evil clowns. is awful? I, I think to. America's going to win. See, I... Have this firm belief in America because America saved us in 1943 when you mm. all came over.
0: Seems like he might let the Russians just take over Europe if they want right
1: now, though. Well, that's what he wants, yeah. and that's what Putin wants. But I think America will win and throw him out. I think American institutions and Americans are true believers in freedom and liberty, and will not put up with this. Yeah, I hope you e- on either side of the aisle. Yeah. You know all the FBI people oh, you know, I, I don't know they're not can. they're Republicans it's not the people he accuses of getting are all so yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what we're seeing and I think you could see it in England too
0: is that these politicians you know r- really most of them stand for nothing but uh, but to, to proximity to power and you know honoring business interests and it's it's sort of
1: interesting how transparently craven this lot is I think they <laughs> I think the Russians have things on them because they all didn't, of them. They, well, they didn't just tap the Democratic Party, right? What that, would you do. They I, say, I agree with that. So I think Lindsey Graham. You can explain exactly. I agree with that. that they have things on all of them. I McConnell, think that's true. Lindsey Graham, uh, yeah, Paul I, Ryan. I, 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 I think they've got big, big, you know, things on them. And what, what what do you make of Brexit? I think it's the same thing. It was. It was. But the Russians were behind it. Uh, foul money came in and yeah. supported it. It's it's to disrupt Europe, yeah. Which is what Putin's our whole thing is
0: destabilize
1: destabilize. Maybe you can destabilize NATO at the same time, right? So um, I, it was it was corrupt. Yeah, have I you, wasn't allowed to vote, but it was it was a. I think it's a, it's a disaster. Why weren't you allowed to vote? Because I don't have a house in England. Oh, but you're still a citizen. I'm still a citizen. I can't vote in elections. I can't vote. I don't pay yeah. taxes, but anyway. Um, Has the feeling changed over there? Have you been there lately? Uh, well, don't forget, London was always very much Remain. London's the city with the most to lose. The city's having to flee because you, you can't run business operations. We were winning that game. Yeah. It's a totally insane policy.
0: Yeah. Oh, boy. We're, we're going to see what's going to happen. That's for sure. <laughs> and... uh so what's
1: your... You Maybe. Gonna,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> I'll be in my nursing home, you know. <laughs> <Don't>, <laughs> Ask me my gin martini, would you? <laughs> you seem to have a pretty good uh, attitude about mortality. Yeah, well, that's from George. Yeah? Yeah, he was very, strong. Remember, you're going to die. All this is going to go away. You yeah. can't... He was the most famous person, group in the world. Yeah. And they he realized that it, it was all going to go away. Yeah. And that's why, you know, his influence was both interesting and spiritual i mean he he brought the whole indian thing into the 60s sure single-handedly yeah that's a guitarist from liverpool and were you there like at the end of his death, yeah, yeah, just after. I mean, I, I just I was visiting him during when he was the sick. whole time. And, yeah. and how
0: was his, uh, how was his disposition about it? Was he still fairly
1: very comfortable? Really? Yes, he felt that he was going to be escape the pain of being rebirth of mm. rebirth, mm-hmm. and so he was very comfortable with the whole process of dying. And there were a lot of you know, Indian things there, music, and uh-huh. and so I'm going. Oh, I don't mind being reborn. <laughs> I'll put my name down for that one, would you? <laughs> so it was the only thing we ever disagreed on. Uh-huh. He accepted the fact that I didn't believe in anything. Uh-huh. And he, you know, he had been a Catholic and then he was a Hindu. You yeah. Know, so, but he was always very generous spiritually. You yeah. Know? And that religion laughs at things a lot. You sure. Know? Like the yeah. Dalai Lama laughs all the time.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's, a, it's a very um, kind of. Uh, the kind of uh, nothing. I I don't I, I don't quite understand it, but it seems to be the most reasonable uh, spiritual practice in terms of acceptance.
1: Realizing we're funny.
0: Yeah. You know. Yeah.
1: That's the best thing. Outside of ourselves, we're just funny. Yeah. It may be tragic to us, but it's funny to other people. Yeah,
0: it, it's, that's true. Yeah. 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 And you have to have a sense of humor. We'd all be so depressed we won't want to live.
1: It's a very I think it's a very useful, yeah, um, yeah. positive thing.
0: Yeah, it's it, it, when there's when there's very little hope,
1: uh, at least there's relief. <laughs> but at least there's no war. People go, "Oh, no, there's very little hope." Look around; they've got you know fifty-two channels of television and fifty-two, yeah, nine hundred. Yeah, exactly. On my but, phone, I yeah, can't. exactly. But the point is, nobody's bombing you yet, right? And that you know that's the important thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Yet, yeah, and, that, and I, I hope it
0: stays that way. It was uh, great talking to you, man. You too thanks thank you how was that that was great that was i i'm so glad i got to talk to to eric Idle, and to john cleese it was you know i i'm i'm living a life people and it's it's pretty pretty fucking amazing even with sweaty mark running around the streets of lower manhattan he can stay there he can stay there for eternity But uh, Mark right now is living an amazing life, and I'm grateful for that. Don't forget to grab a paperback copy of Waiting for the Punch wherever you get books or at markmarinbook.com, and uh, I'll let you know what happens on set if I can, within reason, within the limitations of what I'm allowed to talk about. Okay? Okay. Boomer lives!